for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's Sermon Audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, is Father Abraham, is he really a, a good example for us to follow? If I grew up in church, I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid in Sunday school, we learned the song, right, about Father Abraham and how we're all many sons and many sons are Father Abraham, many sons of Father Abraham, and so you and I are uh, Abraham's sons and daughters. And so this guy got a song, right? And if you fast forward into the Bible, like if you know maybe one of the most famous passages in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 has this list of the, some people call it the hall of faithfulness, this list of faithful saints from the Old Testament. Well, Abraham is included in that. Further, we read uh, in in, uh, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and and it was counted to him as righteousness. That that phrase about Abraham can be uh, translated that he was reckoned righteous. And that verse is actually quoted by Paul twice in the New Testament in Romans 4, 3, Galatians 3, 6. And James also quotes it in James 2, 23. So Abraham has got a Sunday school song. He's listed in the hall of faithfulness in Hebrews 11, and he's been counted righteous. He seems like a good example to follow, right? However, after being, quote, reckoned righteous, his wife was unable to have children, and he tried to fulfill God's promise Uh, uh, by taking matters into his own hands and he took a concubine named Hagar and he tried uh, to fulfill God's promise through his own means and his own strength. Also, after that point of being reckoned righteous, he uh, he was filled with fear when he uh, came across a powerful king. And so uh, his plan there was basically to give his wife away to the king. Now listen, Um, I would not put those two instances in the life of Abraham in the category of righteous, okay? Let me me say it another way. Ladies, if your husband tries to pull any of those two things, elders are coming to knock on your door, okay? We're quickly going into a church discipline process. So again, is Father Abraham really a good example for us to follow? Well, Abraham is clearly uh, not an example of perfect faith, But I do think he's an example of enduring faith. He waited patiently. He held fast to the hope of God's promises in his life. You see, the real hero of the story of Abraham isn't Abraham. He's not the star of the show. The the hero of the story of Abraham is this God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So like Abraham, you might be someone who has very imperfect faith. Meaning that, okay, maybe you've made this profession of faith of Christ. Maybe God's reckoned you righteous. But then if we were to catch these moments in your life, we would see some glaring inconsistencies. I would put myself in that category. However, like Abraham, if we made a movie out of your life, Abraham wouldn't be the hero of that movie. And it would be the same thing probably for you. 
Hebrews 6, 13 to 18 is important because it reminds us that God is the hero of our stories. He's the promise maker and he's the, the promise keeper. Now, like I said, if you're with us uh, for the first time, we're kind of going through this lengthy uh, series uh, through the book of Hebrews, and we're taking some stops to pace ourselves a little bit. But here, in what, uh, what Hebrews is, is all about is it's dealing with this problem of people falling away. People fall away from the faith today. There was a, there's times where someone might claim to be a Christian, and then you fast forward 10 years of their life, and they say they're no longer a Christian. That happens today, and it happened uh, back in the New Testament time. But the solution to that problem of falling away is the message of Hebrew, which is Jesus is better. Whatever is tempting someone to fall away, maybe it's good things like you know, giving all their time to their family or, or really you know, pursuing a, a career. It, it could be maybe uh, not virtuous things like uh, you know, pursuing uh, fleshly desires or whatever it is. Whatever these things are that is tempting us away, when we're in those moments, we're to remember that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than a successful career. Jesus is better than a perfect family. Jesus is, is better than fulfilling all of our fleshly desires. Jesus is better. And what we're going to see today, and this is why Hebrews 6, 13 to 18 is so important, because it reminds us that God is the hero of our stories because He's the promise maker as well as the promise keeper. Uh, we're also in... Um, Hebrews chapter 6, and, and as we've talked for a couple of weeks, that Hebrews chapter 6 is one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible to interpret. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret this, and there's been books and books and books written, and, you know, arguing with each other of what are we supposed to do with Hebrews chapter 6. I think the best way of understanding it is that he's, the first part of Hebrews chapter 6, he's, he's talking about people that are either in one of two categories. He's talking about people who uh, maybe are not really converted. Maybe they said they were, maybe they thought they were, but they really aren't. Or he's talking about people who have not gone on to maturity, how he says in verse 1. So these are people that maybe they were truly converted, but their lives look nothing like it, and it's because they're very immature Christians. Now, the solution to both of those uh, people, no matter what camp that person is in, maybe there's someone uh, who has not really been converted, maybe there's someone who has been converted, but they're just really immature in their faith, the solution or the charge to both of those is to be earnest in your salvation. To really push into your spirituality. Not to leave it in this category of apathy or nominalism, but, but, but to really take it serious. To fight for faithfulness. To work out the answers to your questions. To repent of unbelief. The blessings of a diligent, intentional faith is both e e e eternal as well as temporal rest. So if you're in that category today, hear that God is calling you to a diligent faith. However, those who are genuinely converted can have this full assurance of hope, uh, verse 11, because God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. Well, let's look at verses 13 to 16 and see how God is the promise maker. Follow along as I read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is, is found for confirmation. So God is the promise maker. He has better things, verse 9, for this group of people. He, he, he believes that these people are truly converted because God is a promise maker. He's made them a promise. 
And the truth of this is meant to spur them on again to earnestness and diligence in their faith. Because God has made this promise, it's to spur us on to greater faithfulness. We're not supposed to back off or be nominal or float along. We're certainly not to abandon it. Rather, we're to wait patiently for the promise. Now, now we see in, in Abraham's life both the promise of God as well as him waiting patiently. Uh, beginning in Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, we see what's called the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's great promise to his people through Abraham. And, and starting in Genesis 12, verses uh, 1, we see that God calls him uh, from his home country to a land that I will show you. And then starting in verse uh, 2, down through verse 3, we see the beginnings of the Abraham covenant, uh, where, where he promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing. L- let me read Genesis 12 to you. Verse 2 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God made this Abrahamic covenants with Abraham. He made these promises to him. He promised him land. He promised him seed, this, this great nation. He promised him blessing. And then this promise actually gets expanded as time goes on. So then in Genesis 15, uh, in verse 5, he says this. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, uh, then, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then we read in the next verse, in verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So then later on in, in uh, Genesis 15, verses 18 to 12, we see the expansion or the, or the clarification of this land promise. So again, God has made these clear promises to Abraham. He, he's made this covenant with Abraham of land and seed and blessing. And then finally in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and he reaffirms his seed covenant. He explains that from his seed will come this great nation. And in this great nation, it'll include kings, this ruling class. And then in uh, uh, verse 7, he explains that his covenant between Abraham and his seed, it's not a temporal covenant, it's an everlasting covenant is what he says. And it includes the land of Canaan in verse 8. But but here it is in verse 8, God promises, I will be their God. That's the the great hope, the great promise of this Abrahamic covenant is God promises, I will be their God. God will be the God of all of Abraham's seed. So this is God's promise. Now, I want to go back for a second to uh, to Genesis 15, 6. And this is where uh, we read this very important verse that is then quoted three times in the New Testament. Let me read 15, 6 again. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, the, the Hebrew uh, is that the righteousness was accounted to him, or he was reckoned righteous. Now listen, this, this might seem like splitting hairs, okay? Why, why are we messing with the meaning of this verse? Well, it's very important because this is the difference between Catholics and Protestants right here, okay? How, how do we interpret that he was uh, reckoned righteous? Well, listen, the, the difference is, is okay, did he, uh, did he infuse righteousness inside of him? Does this mean that God came in and made, cleaned everything up on the inside where Abraham was then perfectly righteous? Is that what he means? That's a Catholic view of it. Now listen, we know that it's not talking about infused righteousness. You know why? Because those two accounts after this point are these two very unrighteous things that Abraham did, okay? 
So the Catholic view kind of falls apart here that, that God doesn't come in and infuse righteousness into Abraham. Rather, he does something on the outside of him. The, the technical term here is that he imputes righteousness to him. So he moves him from a category of unrighteousness to a category of righteousness. It doesn't mean that everything on the inside of Abraham is perfectly righteous. We know that's not to be true. But, but he moves him in this category from unrighteousness to righteousness. He declares him righteous. Now listen, Martin Luther understood that to be very good news. You know why? Because Martin Luther was like you and me, where he really struggled with righteousness. He knew he was not perfectly righteous. And so if the gospel was God makes you righteous on the inside and you never then sin again, you never struggle with sin again, and that's what it means to be a Christian, then I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like good news because that doesn't sound like my life. But if the gospel is, listen, God comes in and imputes righteousness upon you, declares you righteous, moves you from this category of unrighteousness to, un to, to righteousness based upon the blood of Christ, that's very good news to me. And so listen, I kind of identify with Abraham, right? Like God's done this gracious work in my life of declaring me righteous. And listen, for the most part, I think Christians walk in, in, in faithfulness to that. But then like Abraham, we have these moments of glaring inconsistencies. But this is what it means to be imputed righteousness. This is really the good news of this passage. We're declared righteous on the outside. Okay, well, what is God's covenant promises to Abraham and what is imputed or declared righteousness what in the world does that have to do with us today well I think a couple of things number one if we believe God's promises we too can be declared righteous friends this is the gospel this is why Redeemer Church exists is to say those very words to declare that truth it is that the good news is that we can all, like Abraham, be declared righteous by God's grace. We, we, we can move to this category where we're no longer unrighteous, but we're righteous. Salvation is through faith in God's promise of imputed righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. The second thing is based upon God's promise of imputed righteousness, even though we will never live perfectly righteous lives in this world, we can, number one, strive for righteousness, and number two, we can wait on the promises to be perfectly fulfilled. That's our Christian life. That sums up what it looks like to be a Christian. We're striving for righteousness. Get God's grace upon us does not mean that, hey, we can now go do whatever we want. We're to continue to strive for faithfulness. And it also means that we're to wait for these promises. He, he has these promises that are coming. There's a culmination of these kingdom promises. They're coming and we're to wait faithfully for them. Another way of maybe looking at Abraham's story is that it teaches that faithfulness means diligently waiting. That's what faithfulness looks like in this world. I, I wish I could say, hey, I've got some sort of tool for you or formula for you to live your best life now. That's not the good news. The good news of the gospel is not here in this life. It's in the life to come. Happiness in this world means that we diligently wait for what is to come. You see, as we've said, Abraham did not have a perfect faith, but he did have an enduring faith. He was not perfectly righteous. He made mistakes. He continued to struggle with sin. He was fearful before he was reckoned righteous. And you know what? He continued to struggle with fearfulness even when he was reckoned righteous. However, he continued to believe the promises. He waited patiently. Likewise, we're not going to have a perfect faith. 
Listen, if you're visiting with us today, this is not a perfect church, okay? So we put the cards on the table. We don't want to run you off. Uh, but even without knowing you, actually what that means is you're going to kind of fit in, okay? Because without knowing you, you're probably not perfect either, right? The, the, our church is not a perfect church. And listen, more specifically, our small group leaders don't always act righteously. Our, our, our elders don't always display bold faithfulness. Our staff can become fearful. Listen, as your pastor, I can get my feelings hurt. I can struggle with a lack of forgiveness. None of us have a perfect faith. However, like Abraham, we really aren't the heroes of our story, are we? That's not the good news of this passage. The good news of the story of Abraham is not go live perfectly righteous lives. No, the gospel is, is that God is the promise maker. The gospel is, is that we wait patiently because God made a promise, Genesis 15, 13. You see, God made this promise to us and then he guarantees it to us. And our job is, is that we're supposed to believe it. We're supposed to trust in it. You see, there's nothing greater uh, to swear by. And so God guarantees this promise. So he swears by himself. Listen, if I go into a bank and said, I promise to keep the loan. I'm a pretty good guy. You can trust me. They're going to say, you seem nice, but no, we, we need some collateral on this. And so on these covenant promises that God makes, he swears by himself. God promises in Genesis 17, 18, that I will be their God. You see, God is the blessing. God is the good news here. He promised us himself. We get to dwell with him. We get to commune with him. We get to know him. He promises to always be with us. He promises to always be for us and work things for our good. He promises that all things will be new and right. He promises that this is not the end, that this world is not our home. We're going to a better place. In this world, we're just sojourning in this kind of in-between times. But during this time, he promises that we get to participate in what he's doing in this world. He gives each of us these spiritual gifts so that we can participate in his redemptive plan in this world. We get to help lead people to, come, to, to become uh, uh, Christ followers. We get to edify the church. We get to participate in this. And that he promises that we get to be there with him when he's accomplishing all his redeeming works. Friends, the good news is not go be perfectly faithful. The good news is that God is perfectly faithful for us. And He makes these promises for us. And, we're, uh, and He goes before us and He fulfills all these promises. And again, our role is simply to believe Him. Our job in all of this is to wait patiently through seasons uh, that are hard. Our, our job is to trust Him and to believe Him. Friends, the good news is that God is a promise maker. But I think the news gets better because not only is he a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. Look at verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has an unchangeable redemptive mission. He is reconciling all things to himself. He is making all things new, Revelation 21. This is his promise. But really the good news gets better because he wants to show all that to us. He wants us to see it. He wants us to experience that reconciliation that he talks about. He wants us to enjoy the taste of the kingdom here. He wants us to really enjoy the feast of the kingdom that, that is to come in the hereafter. 
when we see His promises, we get taste of His truth. We get to experience the Gospel here. Then we get to experience joy and we get to experience His glory. He prom- His promises for us are good. What God promises is good to us. He's always working for our good, Romans 8. And that leads to this place to where we get to experience His promises and we, and we get to experience the joy that comes from it. This is the good news of the Gospel. Further, not only does He want us uh, to know that He makes promises, but He also wants us to know that He keeps His promises. He's trying to convince us of this. He's trying to remind us when we're tempted to maybe fall away. That Listen, He keeps His promises. Well, what he does here is he's demonstrating that these are true, that these are things that we can truly believe in. These are things that we can wait upon. These are things that we can hope on. These are things that we can build our lives upon through the ups as well as the down. He wants us to know that his promises are guaranteed. In order to demonstrate that he's a promise keeper, he guarantees it with an oath. But, but again, going back to that banking illustration, he guarantees it with himself. He's the oath. He's the guarantee. Now you might think, okay, well that doesn't work for a, for a loan today. How does this work here? Well, do you remember the story in Genesis 22 where, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him? I mean, it's a scary and there's some ethical thing. Okay, wait a sec, what, what's he saying here? Well, basically what he's trying to get him to do is he loves this child more than anything. And, and in fact, it, it's, it can almost be idolatrous to him, right? And, and God wants to know that, Abraham, do you love me or do you love your children more? And so he walks up this mountain to sacrifice his son. Now, I think the best interpretation of it, I think Abraham believes that he's going to kill his son, but then God's going to come along and resurrect him from the dead. I know that's radical, but I think this is a moment of radical faith in Abraham's life. Now, if you remember the story, the angel of God comes in, stops him before he sacrifices his son. But then in, Abraham, uh, in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, we read this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. He guarantees all these promises by Himself. He's the oath. And listen, He guarantees His covenant promises with His unchangeable character. That's the guarantee. God never changes. So when He says something and He guarantees it, we know it's true. Friends, God's character is perfect. He never lies. He never becomes sinfully angry. He always forgives. He he sacrificially loves. His timing is always perfect. Parents, am I the only one with that struggle? His timing and His tone is always perfect. His grace is always sufficient. He's the embodiment of love. Further, all those things are unchangeable. So think about this for a moment. God never grows. You mature and change and grow But God never grows more loving. He's already perfectly loving. Like God never grows uh, and becomes more perfect. You can't become more perfect. He's already there. The, the, The point is, is that if He guarantees His promise based upon His perfect unchangeableness, then it's guaranteed. The good news is that He's a promise maker and He's the promise keeper. Okay, so what? Well, look at verse 18. The so what is so that we uh, therefore will hold fast to the hope set before us. The, The purpose of the guarantee is to encourage us to endure in our gospel hope. We're to hold fast. You see, listen, we're talking about the surety of God's gospel. We're talking about the guarantee of His promises. 
So listen, you might be tempted sometimes when there's something that you want that is not in line with God's Word. That temptation is, yeah, God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. This is all based upon His grace and His promises so I can go on and kind of live however I want. Wrong. This is not meant to lead to a lazy spirituality. It's not meant to lead to a sinful life. It's not meant to lead to nominal Christianity. If that is where that has led you, you're doing it wrong. You need to repent of the error of your ways and you need to believe something new. You need to believe that the promise-making and the promise-keeping God, He does all of that promise-making and all that promise-keeping in order to motivate you to faithfulness. When you hear these truths today, you should, be, you should strive for greater faithfulness. You see, Hebrews 6, 13-18 is a call to resist sin. It's a call to battle against all those things. The hope of your glorious future is meant to inspire you to good works. But when we read about this glorious future, when we read about these promises, we're supposed to double down in our belief. And we're supposed to believe in them in more radical ways. And we're supposed to live in more faithful ways. We have the hope of a glorious future. Therefore, we're to hold fast today. Now, before we move on from this, let me just make one more comment about our hope. You see, our hope is based upon us being in Christ as his heir. Galatians 3.21 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now listen, the Bible is very clear that God loves every person that he's created. The Bible is also very clear that those who believe that Jesus' good work on the cross is a payment for their sins, rather than trusting in their own insufficient good works, those are the ones who are in Christ. That's a different category. God loves them both. But those uh, who, who trust in, in Christ's good work on the cross, those are in Christ. That also means that they're heirs according to the promise. That means that they're now part of this family and they receive the inheritance. They receive these promises. They are Abraham's offspring, meaning that they're, they have Abraham-like faith. They're ones who have been declared righteous. They're not going to live perfectly righteous life, but they're going to wait faithfully and patiently for these promises to be fulfilled. Those are, are, those are the ones who are in Christ, that they're heirs, they're inheritors of the promise. Listen, the question you need to ask yourself today is, are you an heir today? Are you in Christ? I think that's the most important takeaway from this. Is he talking about you today? Are you a child of God? Have you been saved from the wrath of God? Have you been forgiven? Have you repented and believed? Those of us who are are called to hold fast. But those of us who are not are called to believe in him and trust him today. You were supposed to believe in the promises that he makes and the promises that he keeps. Join us and become an heir today. He has promises and he wants to show you. Listen, maybe that's a good place to stop. But let me give you two more, what I think are great takeaways from this passage. Number one, holding fast is about remaining unmoved. The world's always moving. The world is always calling you to move and change with it. The, the world, and maybe it's mostly extreme uh, instances of this, are calling you to move away from God, meaning don't even believe in Him, even categorically or theologically. But the world is, is always in these subtle ways calling us uh, not to believe in His promises. Maybe you have the temptation to kind of cherry pick which verses you want to believe and which ones you want to reject. Maybe you're weighing the cost of a commitment to Christ and you're filled with fear over the unknown. Listen, it's hard to stay put. 
It's hard to just remain holding fast to the Gospel. Holding fast is not easy. There's always going to be an excuse. There's always going to be a reason to slip away and to let go and to go away. Don't be moved because Jesus is the promise maker and the promise keeper. But I think this also has something to say for when challenges come. When challenges pop up in our lives, we're to believe in the unmoved mover. Again, He's the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. He guarantees His promises. He's the one who is unchanging. His oath is based upon that unchanging nature of God. And when we are at our lowest, we're to believe that God never changes, that He's the unmoved mover. When we face our most challenging days, we're to go back to those deep and profound theological, biblical truths, and they hold us steady there. It will enable you to keep going back to the well and the promises that never run dry. Profess faith in the promises even when you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it. They're just too good to let go of. Amen? Listen, joy is found in those gospel promises. Believe in the unchanged, uh, uh, unmoved mover, especially in the hard days. Last week, I, I spoke of being a, a teenager with an immature spirituality. My, my immature faith was demonstrated that I had these abstract theological thoughts about God, and, and, it, and it, it twisted all these doctrines that were, that were right and pure and, and biblical doctrines, but I would twist them in, in such a way to where I would really kind of get what my fleshly desires wanted. Sound like most 18-year-old boys, okay? However... In college, God gave me a more mature understanding of Him. You see, I learned that, listen, Christianity is not about doing more good than bad. It's not about trying to lower the bar so that I can wiggle around stuff or whatever. I pushed into these beautiful, glorious things about God, these high and eternal things about God. And they became profound and beautiful to me. I read verses like Malachi 3.6 where the Lord says, for I am the Lord, I change not. And I just pondered those things. And listen, it led me to worship, not doubt. It led me to joy, not, not you know, less happiness like I thought it would. An old Greek philosopher rightly observed that man cannot step into the same river twice. His point is that things around us are always changing, Right? A river is constantly changing, you know, uh, the, the surrounding. The water runs through it and never runs through again. You, you can't step really in the same river twice because, uh, because things are always changing. People are the same way, but God's not. Let me read this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said this about the, the Bible's unchanging, unmoved mover. Spurgeon said, But God is perpetually the same. He's not composed of any substance or material, but in spirit, pure, essential, in, in the in ethereal spirit. And therefore, He is immutable. He remains everlasting the same. There are no furrows on His eternal brow. No age hath palsied Him. No years have marked Him with the mementos of their flight. He sees ages past, but with Him it is ever now. He is the great I Am, the great unchangeable you see as a college student i found those truths glorious the fact of god's sovereignty his glory his unchangeableness i found those things beautiful and they, they were not things that i was supposed to question and battle against they were things that i was supposed to embrace and enjoy and trust in i found that i was supposed to marvel in his unchangeable nature 
I found joy in his word and joy in his promises. I found him to be the good news, not his gifts. That's how God changed me. I saw that by desiring him, I could find joy everlasting. And my approach to his promise was less about wiggling around them. And it was more about giving up more so that I could experience greater joy as I pursued them. Hear me, friends. No one in this room has a perfect faith. We are all like Abraham. We all have moments of of maybe glorious, divinely inspired, sacrificial love and faith. And we also have these shocking moments of, of inconsistencies. Therefore, Abraham is not our hero. The story of Abraham teaches us that God is our hero. It's less about the quality of your faith, and it's more about the object of your faith. And let me tell you about the object of your faith. He's the promise maker, and he's the promise keeper. Hope in his promises, not because of your own character, but because of God's character. His promises are good. He wants you to taste them. He wants you to be heirs who hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this reminder today from your word. I thank you for taking us back to the truths that that you have made these glorious promises to us. You have made all things new. You're making all things right. By your grace, you've, you've declared us righteous. You've moved us in this new category. And so, Lord, we praise you for it. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's not in that category, I pray they would know that you love them to the degree that you died for them. And the call today is to become an heir. The call today is to believe the promises, to to trust in you, not to try to wiggle around your word, but, but, but to try to embrace it. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that they would feel the conviction just to slip back as we sing and and visit with one of our elders. Lord, you're the great promise maker and the promise keeper. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.